Please turn with me to John chapter 6. We've been studying the Gospel of John, and particularly we're spending a few weeks here in this uh, very important chapter 6. This morning we'll be looking at the section that begins with verse 22, and I'll read through verse 35. This is God's holy and errant word. Please give it your attention. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I think it was Andy Warhol who once predicted that in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And so that 15 minutes of fame has become kind of an American proverb. We talk about how quickly and how quickly people rise to fame and fall from fame and popularity in this culture. Well, if the sixth chapter of John's Gospel had a subtitle, it could be the end of Jesus' 15 minutes of fame. You think of how short his earthly ministry was, only three years, and only for a very small portion of that was Jesus what the world would call famous. But boy, what a 15 minutes he had. But look at how it changes in this sixth chapter. Look at verse 2. It says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. We saw that that large crowd included 5,000 men. You add to that the women and children that probably accompanied those 5,000 men. And we said last week, maybe about 15,000 people 
We're following Christ out here in the wilderness on the deserted eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. But then if you skip on down ahead to verse 66, it says, After this, after the events that John records in John 6, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Fifteen minutes are over. The Lord is dropping in the public opinion polls faster than a second-term president or somebody like Joe Paterno. No longer famous any longer. It's kind of amazing, isn't it, when you think about what he had just accomplished. After feeding 15,000 people with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. At that point, where we kind of pick up the storyline this morning, Jesus was, in the eyes of the people, on the verge of unprecedented historic greatness. So much so that in verse 15, we saw the people were ready to take him by force, if necessary, to Jerusalem and put him on the throne and pledge their allegiance to him and follow his lead in conquering the Roman Empire. But we saw last week that Jesus responded to that kind of popularity by sending his disciples away on a boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and escaping to the mountains to be alone with the Lord, the God, his Father, and to pray. Well, the next morning, and that's where we kind of pick up the storyline today, the next morning, the crowds are searching desperately for Jesus on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. They had seen that the apostles had left without him. They had seen that he had gone into the mountains. They thought he had to be there somewhere, so they searched all over for him and couldn't find him anywhere. Eventually, they themselves got into boats and crossed the Sea of Galilee to go to Capernaum, not because they expected to find Jesus there, but because they knew that that for the past year or so, that had been his base of operations with him and his disciples. They'd been living and staying there in Capernaum as they traveled around Galilee. So they took the boats across the sea to go to Capernaum, figuring that since Jesus' disciples were there, someday Jesus would show up there. Lo and behold, when they got to Capernaum, Jesus was already there. But think about this. Probably not the whole crowd of 15,000, but a large percentage of that crowd of 15,000 are stalking Jesus. Following him around like a bunch of paparazzi. You can almost imagine them screaming like Beatles fans when he walked into the area. They are crazy about Jesus at this point. You've probably never known a real Jesus groupie. I mean, I, you know, maybe you have. I, I remember many years ago, I knew a, a young woman actually kind of a sad thing, a very needy young woman, who was the closest thing that I'd ever encountered to what I'd call a Jesus groupie. She read her Bible for hours and hours every day. When she wasn't reading her Bible, much of the time she was singing hymns and Christian songs. She didn't work, but she would go and hang out at a nearby Bible camp a lot of the time. 
And if you go into her house, you would see that she had little post-it notes stuck everywhere, over the walls, the refrigerator, mirrors, everywhere. There are little post-it notes with Bible verses and inspirational sayings on them. Now, that could be real devotion, but as you got to know her, it really wasn't. That there was something unsettling about her need to talk about Jesus, to read about Jesus, to be immersed in the trappings of Christianity. There was something very self-centered about it, something very needy, something very panicky about her need to be religious. And I remember one of the counselors I talked to about her said she was, in a very unhealthy way, addicted to Christianity. So it, it made me wonder, you know, it's really, from scriptural terms, it's not possible to be too devoted to Jesus. It's not possible to be too centered around Jesus Christ. But there is an unhealthy way to seek Jesus. An unhealthy and ultimately self-centered way of seeking after Jesus. And that's what we see here in the crowd. Jesus in this part of the text, actually rejects the praises and the the appeals of the crowd. He doesn't seize upon an opportunity to expand upon his earthly popularity. Instead, he rejects their affections. And I think it's important for us to take a few moments this morning to talk about why. We're talking about Finding true satisfaction in life. Finding what we really need. Acknowledging that what we really need in life is in Jesus. But if we seek it in the wrong way, he will reject us. And we will go away empty like this crowd did. Now Jesus, as we know, the part of the story I left out is that Jesus had been praying for his disciples while they were fighting for their lives on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a sudden and vicious storm. And Jesus left his time of prayer and walked to the disciples as they were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, walked on the water, through the storm, to the boat, got into the boat, stilled the storm, and took the disciples to the other side of the sea. We know that's what happened. The crowd didn't know that, but the disciples did, and that's how he had gotten to Capernaum long before the crowd ever got there. So in verse 25, it says the crowd finally tracked down Jesus in Capernaum, surprised to see him there, and they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? How in the world did you get here so quickly if you didn't come on the boat with the disciples? Makes me wonder how they would have reacted if he had just said, I walked here, but... Instead of really satisfying their curiosity, he doesn't answer their question, does he? It's amazing how Jesus asks questions, not for his own information, as we saw last week, but to get people to analyze their own heart. But when people ask him questions, he often doesn't answer their question either. He responds in a way so that they will search their own heart. And that's what happens again here. He asks them to explore their motivation for chasing after him the way they are. Basically, he wants them to ask, first and foremost, what kind of satisfaction are you looking for? You're seeking after me desperately, but what kind of satisfaction are you looking for? 
Verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He knew their hearts. He had made their hearts. He knew their hearts. And he said, you are passionately seeking me, not because you saw the signs that point to who he is and his glory, but because you saw the signs as means to meet your own self-centered, selfish needs. You want me to keep your belly full. Matter of fact, it's interesting, the words in the original Greek, you ate your fill, actually the, the, the particular Greek verbs that Jesus uses here are the words that you would normally use for animals, for livestock at feeding time. In other words, you just want to graze. You just want to pig out. You're following me for the same reason that animals follow the one who feeds them. You're not really interested in me. You're interested in what I have to provide for your physical, earthly, temporal needs. You're driven by your physical lusts and desires to chase after me. That's what he wants them to realize. And that kind of beast-like motivation, it's interesting, if you turn over to Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about unbelievers here. He's talking about what he calls enemies of the cross. Not just unbelievers, but hostile unbelievers. But notice how he unveils their heart attitude, their motivation for living. He says in verse 18 of Philippians 3, For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's the way that unbelievers live. Because ultimately, no matter how sophisticated and cleaned up we look on the outside, if we are not truly seeking Christ for the right reasons, or if we are not seeking Christ at all, we are ultimately driven by our inner, self-centered, selfish, fleshly desires. And that's really no different than the animal kingdom, is it? You're driven by the hunger of your belly, is what Paul is saying, with your mind set on earthly things. And that's The same description, really, that Jesus is giving to this crowd. This is what your hearts are like. As long as our lives are self-centered in that way, as long as we're driven by those kind of self-centered needs, basically saying, I want what's best for my earthly existence in all circumstances, then what we're going to do is we're going to sell our soul to the highest bidder. We're going to serve the God that will make us most happy and healthy and popular and well-fed. And that's what we're going to pray for from this God. But Jesus says in verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He's saying to this crowd, Stop living for the here and now. Stop letting your lives be driven by earthly, self-centered desires. Don't seek satisfaction in what is temporary, And what turns to dust and blows away? Let me ask you a question this morning. I want to ask you to, in your own mind, fill in this blank as honestly as possible. 
If only I had blank, I would be satisfied and content. If only I had blank, I would be satisfied and content. Bottom line is most of us would have a Christmas list in our minds of things that we could put in that blank. If only I had a bigger house, I would be content. If only I had a loving spouse, then I could be content. If only I had a job that I really enjoyed going to work every day, then I would be content. If only I had a million dollars, wow, then I would really be content. That's the same motivation this crowd had. As long as I have a full belly, then I'll be content. John Piper says that we make a cuckold out of Christ when we pray to him and ask for him to provide earthly resources so that we can be satisfied in those resources and not in him. You know what a cuckold is. It's a clueless husband who gives his wife lots of material things, money and things, and then she takes those material things and goes off and has an affair with somebody else. You see... Really, when you seek Christ for what he can do for you in the here and now, in a self-centered world, then you are actually asking Christ to provide the resources for you to make an idol out of something else. And there is no greater form of spiritual idolatry than that, or spiritual adultery. Well, the, So if once you analyze what you really are looking for, to be satisfied in life, even if you're asking Jesus for it and seeking Jesus for it, the second question he would have us ask ourselves is how do you receive it? How do you receive the kind of enduring food that Jesus is offering here? How do you get the food that endures to eternal life? He tells us where it comes from at the end of verse 27. The Son of Man will give it to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. He says, you love my miracles because they fill your belly, because they make you healthy, because they make you prosperous in this life. That's why you love my miracles. You're missing the whole point of my miracles. My miracles are given as signs. Not to point to themselves as the ultimate good in life, but to point to the one who performs the signs. They are signs that show who is the one who has the seal of approval from God the Father. In other words, the one who is the representative of God, the image of God, the one who speaks for God. That's what the miracles were intended for, and they've missed the intention completely. The miracles were meant to say, as we've seen it week after week, the miracles were meant to say to the world... This God say the Father saying, This is my beloved Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the one who is authorized by the God of the universe, God the Father, to give eternal satisfaction. Look at verse 28. The crowd responds to what Jesus says with a question that reveals their self-centered worldview. They say, what must we do then to be doing the works of God? What must we do? What can we do out of our own resources, out of our own intelligence, out of our own religious fervor? What can we do 
in order to gain or to obtain this eternal satisfaction, this eternal food that you talk about? What efforts can we make? What sacrifices can we make? What does the Father expect from us in order to get this kind of eternal satisfaction? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that says you can do nothing. You have nothing to offer to a holy God because of your sin. You must come with your emptiness and your hunger and your thirst and receive by faith the one whom God the Father has sent. Salvation is by faith alone, not by works. And even those works that we do are a gift from God once we exhibit our faith in Christ. It's all of grace. If you want an eternally satisfying life, then you receive it by coming to Christ and believing in him, putting your faith in him, making him the center and the source of your life. That's how you receive true and lasting satisfaction. Which brings us to the last question, how do you keep it? How do you know it's going to stay? How do you know it's not just a momentary thing? Verse 30, the crowd responds to Jesus' claim. They did somewhat understand what he's saying. They understand he is claiming a unique place in the universe. Something that none of the other prophets of the Old Testament had ever claimed. He's claiming to be the source of all satisfaction and the one whom we are to make the center of our lives. That's what he's claiming. And they seem to understand that because they say to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? He had done many signs. And it seems at this point, how could they possibly, especially after the feeding of thousands upon thousands, how could they ask for another sign where they're saying, well, hey, wait a minute, Jesus. You know, we'll seek after you, you know, based on the signs that you've done. You're a great prophet. You're a great teacher. You might even be the Messiah, but you're making a claim that's far beyond anything anybody's ever claimed before. You're going to make a claim by that. You better do some kind of really special sign here. What kind of a sign are you going to do so that we will have that kind of a faith relationship with you? Matter of fact, we know that that's their thinking because in verse 31, they explain their request by referring to manna. Remember what manna was. It was the daily bread, the daily food that God gave from heaven to the Israelites in the wilderness. And they refer to that manna. And they say, hey, Moses gave us manna every day. Made sure that we always had food. Why don't you give us a, a greater sign in that vein? You know, those, those uh, fish sandwiches we had yesterday, those were great. But they're gone now, and we're hungry again. You really want to do a sign, give us that kind of a meal every day so that we're never hungry. You see, they kind of get it, but they still don't. They're still looking for a Lord and a source and a Messiah who's going to serve their earthly, self-centered, temporal needs. They just want one that's going to be there every day for them. And they think that's what Jesus is offering. 
Jesus replies, basically, you're wrong on two points. First of all, Moses didn't give you that daily bread. That was directly from God, and God had a purpose for it. Second point is that manna was a sign, too. Just like all my miracles are signs, that manna was a sign. It wasn't meant to point to itself as as an end. It was meant to point to a far greater source of daily sustenance to come in the future. A far greater bread from heaven. And just like, you remember back in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, when Jesus talked about this living water, that if you drank of this living water that Jesus was offering, you would never be thirsty again? Remember how the woman replied, Sir, give me this water, so that I'll never be thirsty and won't have to keep coming back to the well. Well, these this crowd of followers gives a, almost the same exact word-for-word response. Wow, give us the kind of bread that will meet our needs every day. Give us this bread always. And it's at this point in verse 35 that Jesus makes one of his most beautiful, most powerful, most important claims. One of his I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. You see, we don't ultimately need things. We don't ultimately need anything in this fallen world. What we ultimately need is a person, the Son of God, the provider and redeemer of God's people. He is the one that we need. And we find lasting satisfaction by coming to him every day as our true bread of life. By acknowledging him as Lord. Remember, the people wanted to make Jesus Lord. They wanted to make him king for their selfish earthly purposes. You don't make Jesus Lord. You acknowledge he is Lord because he is the center of the universe. He is the center of your life. You serve him. He does not serve your agenda and purposes. You must come to him as your source, your Lord, your provider, and your redeemer. And when you do, by faith, you will find lasting, continual, deeper spiritual satisfaction that will get you through any time of physical want and need and suffering. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we who have come to Jesus Christ by faith who have acknowledged him to be Lord and depend upon him daily, it doesn't mean that we always live with absolute, perfect spiritual satisfaction and fulfillment. But it does mean that if we know him by faith, he has established an eternal relationship with us so that even when we don't acknowledge his presence, even when we don't acknowledge him as our source, even when we don't acknowledge him as Lord, he is always there for us. We always have the bread of life in our cupboard. We are never without what we need. Because he is faithful and he is always with us. Jesus said that the key to fruitfulness in this life is to abide in him. You will bear much fruit if you abide in me. So the more we're able to live in utter awareness and dependence upon him day in and day out we will know true 